Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. My name is Patrick. Today on the show you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Gary Edward Schnitger, professor of Old Testament at Cairn University in Pennsylvania in the States and author of the newly released book Old Testament Use of Old Testament. This is a fascinating mammoth volume about the way that the Old Testament authors quote each other, expand upon each other, and how they are in dialogue with each other. And it's a, it's a very creative and fresh examination of these ancient texts. And I would heartily recommend that if you like what you hear in this conversation, that you feel free to get the book at the link below in the description. Um, so before we get on to the podcast, I'd just like to thank everyone who has downloaded and shared the podcast so far. I'm amazed at the keen interest in such a niche topic as biblical scholarship, and I find it really encouraging. So thank you. Now, on to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Gary. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm just going to start with a set of brief fun questions so the audience can learn a bit more about this voice they're they're hearing just see what what he's about so um at school what was your best and your worst subject and does that have any impact on becoming a bible scholar at all um well maybe it does maybe it doesn't i don't know i i was bad at every subject there's no good subject i was um i was a rotten student as a kid um I was one of those uh, kids that just couldn't sit still and was always sort of getting into trouble. So I hated school. Um, didn't decide even to go to college until um, really late in my senior year of high school. I, I didn't even think about careers. I've never been one to look ahead. So yeah. I went to college sort of on a whim. Didn't do very well in college either. I mean, maybe the only um, thing I did well in was my biblical studies classes. I, I really did enjoy them. But I, I just felt like school, even college, was just a huge waste of time. I wasn't planning on um, going into teaching. Uh, it just sort of came upon me, I guess you would say. And so I wound up, of all places, in the living room of one of my favorite beloved Bible professors, um, Dr. Rennie Showers. Uh, he's passed on now, but he, he was such a nice man, even though I was not a good student. And he, um, he said, I, I think you should go to seminary. And I just, I just laughed. I said, you've got to be kidding me. That's such a waste of time. Why would I go to seminary? He says, well, he's a very gentle man. He says, I, I, I know that you love the Lord. He said, but if you can just stop and study, not, not even do volunteer work, just study for a few years, it'll change your ministry for the whole rest of your life. I said, you want me to go to graduate school? And just study? Are you kidding me? And so I just couldn't believe it. And I, I thanked him, though. So when we were leaving, I told um, uh, Shari, my girlfriend, I said, you're not going to believe what Dr. Shower said to me. He thinks I should go to graduate school and just study, not even do volunteer work, working with young people. And she said, I think he's right. And so I was just blown away. I mean, that was like a big turning point in my life, just... I was stopped in my tracks. I mean, when I did wind up going to seminary, I, I just have to say, I mean, I loved every part of it. I mean, I just, I mean, I loved every course, everything. So 
yeah, so it was a big turnaround in my life to sort of wake up. And I, I didn't really know myself, uh, I guess you would say. I mean, I didn't really realize that, you know, uh, academics is where I belong. And can I just add that I'm glad that there's um, someone else who went to college on a whim. I thought I was the, the only person who did that. I got all my degrees on whims. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I started this podcast on a whim. So moving on to uh, your um, your hobbies, I'm wondering if you could um, describe to the listeners if you have any unusual hobbies that they might be surprised by. Are you like a, a, a stamp collector or um, a wine tasting guy? Do you like bear hunting, that type of thing? Or? Oh, those all sound great. Uh, none of those. Um uh, when my son, he he's an adult now, but when he was just a very small child, he he loves sports, and I'm not a sports person, but I decided um, for his birthday every year, I would take him to an American football game at a different stadium. So every year we go to a different stadium, and I've been doing that all these years. And um, so he's been to, we've been to most of the American football stadiums now. I had a daughter a couple years later, and um, I needed to do something for her that was equivalent, of course. So since she was a little girl, I've been taking her to um, Broadway musicals uh, in New York City every year to a different one. And at first, I mean, I didn't really get them, but I mean, I love the Broadway musicals. They're really terrific. And um, I mean, don't tell anybody this, but I, I like the funny ones. And I think um, my favorite Broadway musical is Legally Blonde. Um, you know, it's a I'm sure it's a great artistic piece. <laughs> um, they probably don't even have it anymore. I don't know if they um, put it on in London or, or not, but very funny um, uh, one. Now, my daughter's favorite was uh, Harry Potter, of course, but, uh, and everybody there was, everybody loves Harry Potter. But I have to tell you, I mean, um, they didn't sing. It's a play. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there like, sing? What, what kind of a musical yeah. is this? <laughs> it's for for me like uh musicals i've always haven't been able to suspend my disbelief during them you know because because it, it just seems like this would never happen in real life that someone just bursts out into song when they're at the gallows or whatever that kind oh, of thing. fair enough yeah now uh more recently i've been uh taking up bike riding um we we moved to a flat um th this year and so i've I have a place to bike ride again. We have a great park near us that used to be um, railroad tracks. They turned it into bike paths. And so I've been, uh, you know, uh, thinking of myself as getting into shape and I'm really like doing it. Uh, just the other morning, I mean, I was really feeling good about myself and I looked over and an old lady passed me on her bike. <laughs> so, <laughs> I still uh, I still have a ways to go as far as um, uh, getting into my new hobby of uh, bicycling. Mm, yes, but I dare say the Bible is your is your main hobby. Would you would you say that? Yeah, I mean the line of work that I'm in, I um, I I love it. So yeah, yeah, I, I it's not even work. I mean to be able to um, write and teach is uh, it, it doesn't even seem like a job, Patrick. Mm. I mean it it really doesn't. Okay, that's good as you can get, really. So, given that you love the Bible so much, um. Which book have of it have you read the least, and why? Yeah, I'm sure that that was a that, that's a really great question. Um, I probably am not supposed to answer because I'll uh, I'll pay for it someday. I'm sure. Um, I think that the easy answer here for me is 
that the apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And part of it um, stems from uh, when I was growing up in the uh, sort of the line of Christianity um, that we were affiliated with, it was these prophecy conferences and, um, you know, uh, very much, I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, um, just focusing on like the end times and reading the newspaper in the other hand and kind of trying to line up the things in the book of Revelation with um, sort of current events. And that just really put off an awful lot of people that are exactly my age. I mean, so the people I went through seminary with probably feel the same way. And I, I just have to say, I mean, reading Revelation has always been hard. I mean, the, the genres, um, it's, it's really always been hard for me to know what to do with it. I mean, it's just unusual. Mm. Uh, I will say my, um, my colleague, Kevin uh, McFadden, he teaches New Testament in the Divinity School where I, I, I work at Cairn University. Um, last year, I was going to Kevin's um, Revelation seminar for upper graduate students, uh, kind of a seminary course, and really enjoying it and um, learning for the first time maybe how to handle some of the genre issues in Revelation. And of course, then COVID hit just when we were getting to the good part. So <laughs> I'm going to have to hopefully, um, if my schedule lines up with Kevin's again, uh, next time he teaches Revelation, I'm going to try to sit in on the second half where it gets good and try to find my way through Revelation. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you say that because something like the book of Zechariah, for example, I've always I've always thought that that was the same kind of literature to Revelation. And I don't know how much you've studied Zechariah in, in depth, but as an Old Testament person, do you find like Zechariah easier to understand than something like Revelation? Or I've been working on a um, commentary for a number of years on Ezra and Nehemiah. And so I've had to teach again and again a course, a seminary course on Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi uh, to sort of get some background for Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, Zechariah's visions, I started to get them more. And so that helped me more, even with the apocalypse of John and with Ezekiel. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think it probably just takes some getting used to. And so I'm, I'm feeling more and more comfortable. And especially, like I said, I, I want to take the second half of my colleague Kevin's class on Revelation. I think that'll really yeah. Um, yeah. do me a big favor. Yes, absolutely. We'll uh, get on to uh, talking about your book now, which of course, um, hopefully will uh, help a lot of people to, to understand the Bible better. And it's uh, called Old Testament Use of Old Testament. It's very much an academic volume, isn't it? Um, oh, it's it's for students. And um, I guess you can throw in there ministers of the word, that is people who have studied um, the scriptures and divinity. But it's, it's for students. It's not really for scholars. Um, and it's not for general readers. I mean, it's a very, it's for students. So it's an introductory work. So it's, it's um, introductory in a sense, but not introductory in a sense, like, um, I'm sure my mom won't understand it. Okay. <laughs> Just, right. okay. right. That's a good way of putting and it. I'm not even, um, I'm not even, you know, uh, people at church have asked me for a long time, like, oh, what's it about? And I've 
learned how to kind of talk about it to help church folk, but it really, this is really something for students and uh, people that are going to minister. So people who have studied. Yeah. Well, I think listeners can tell, at least from, from the title, they can get the gist of, of what it's about anyway. And, um, um, maybe as a warning to the listeners, this book is a monster size-wise. So I'm wondering, um, how long did it take you to write it and how difficult was the process? Well, it, um, it was really hard and really easy. Um, so as far as length, I mean, of time, probably took me 20 years and then four years. I mean, so wow. uh, this is an area of longtime interest for me, Patrick. Um, so all the way back to the very, you know, when I was doing my doctoral studies and into my early teaching, I was very interested in the um, Old Testament use of scripture. So this has been a part of what I've been working on as a teacher and the other um, research I've done for a long, long time. So I had probably worked out most of the book over the years just in the classroom. Um, So then actually writing the book um, only took four or five years after I got a contract for it. But um, I think that there's a couple of things that uh, really had to happen before I would um, I was ready to write this book. The the two watershed things that I was not tuned into twenty um, some years ago uh, was the need to approach this book by book, passage by passage. That is this to approach it inductively. I mean, because a lot of the other studies out there, they kind of work at it from a hermeneutical angle or something like this. Um, but to actually just stop and say, oh, wait, wait, the way that we get the scriptures is through these scrolls, these books. That's the way it is. And so, um, and in one sense, you know, what does it mean to study a book of the Bibles, use the scripture like Isaiah, unless we can compare it to the other prophets? And then what does that mean unless we can compare it to the rest? So in a sense, there was it kind of all goes together. Um, so that idea of studying the Old Testament's use of scripture, book by book, passage by passage, and then stopping at the end of each scroll and saying, all right, how does this shake out compared to the rest? Uh, The second sort of watershed um, issue is, um, I use the term progressive revelation. Um, And that's short for the progressive revelation of God's redemptive will. And that idea um, as a framework in which to understand this uh, use of scripture within Israel's scriptures, that wasn't obvious to me at the beginning. Um, When that sort of, when I began to get a framework for how to um, understand what was going on with the biblical authors, that really, almost just like a click where you hear it snap together and things started to then move forward. Um, so those are the two watershed issues. Maybe the simple answer is, this is a monster book. We, we, yes, um, this is a very controversial area. Um, every single um, hermeneutical um, approach, every interpretation is contested. So it's really difficult. Every single part of this book, every single case, it's hard. 
yeah. because um, it's much contested. But on the other side, I mean, I, I'm hopefully um, I'm communicating this to you. Uh, this is something that has sucked me in years ago. So yeah. it's easy in the sense because this is what I do. And so, um, I mean, I hate to confess this, maybe, but turning this monster of a manuscript in, I was a little sad. I mean, it was a bittersweet. Yeah. I mean, because I want to finish the book. I mean, it was my goal, but I really enjoyed the opportunity of um, studying it. Um, it was, it's, it's a privilege. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's good that, you know, you weren't just, you weren't just writing this because someone asked you to write it. You, this was a, this was a labor of love for you. And that's uh, <laughs> great, great to hear. Um, yeah, if you want to ask me to write a book, uh, be nice if it was a hundred page book, right? Yeah, yeah. Not a thousand page book. <laughs> um, I suppose um, one thing you um, touched on there is this idea of um, progressive revelation. Um, and uh, I suppose, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, um, you know, it's a kind of a loaded term, but um, it's... It, in a sense, like the prophets, um, they're not, they don't think of themselves as innovators. Uh, they tend to think of themselves as very conservative. I mean, a prophet like Jeremiah says um, repeatedly that the Lord's been sending messengers saying this again and again. You know, we read that over and over in Jeremiah. Um, and he thinks he's not really saying anything new. So in a sense, then, um, progressive revelation, this idea of uh, the advancement of uh, God's redemptive will. It, it, it's, it's not an innovation out of um, new cloth or the clear blue sky um, that, you know, God reveals his will in many ways, but I'm focusing particularly on this small subset of the biblical author's use of scripture. And so in that case, when they are interpreting um, the earlier scriptures, there's continuity because they're not just saying something new they're teaching something new in light of right these old scriptural traditions these old authoritative um works mm. but they're when they're interpreting they're recasting it in a new way so maybe one way to get at this there's um sort of there's external and internal impetuses for uh, uh scriptural exegesis Externally, we can think about Israel. Um, their identity has radical shifts over the years. They go from being uh, slaves to wanderers to invaders to uh, sort of a village society to having their own kingdom to having competing kingdoms, uh, not like not unlike um, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States, and to um, then becoming captives and then becoming, um, um, re returning to their ancestors' homelands. So over a thousand years, these people are switching hats again and again. They're in one crisis after another. So in one sense, the scriptural authors need to say something to reach out to Israel in each new stage of their messy, messy lives. But they they often tend, at least that's what I'm focusing on, not to just say something new, but they're kind of reaching back to these older traditions and reaching Israel in a new context. But so they need to interpret scripture to help Israel. 
So that's kind of the external. The, the internal is as scripture begins to accumulate on these scriptural traditions, um, we notice uh, use the term interpretive blend. So often um, interpretations of scripture are interpreting this scriptural tradition in the light of that scriptural tradition. And so these two scriptural traditions produce a result that's greater than the sum of the two individual passages considered individually, because it leads to deductions and extrapolations. So internally, the scriptures themselves have an inertia or a motion to them, so to speak, because um, God's will is dynamic. Um, so anyway, there's internal and external sort of uh, triggers for these this kind of progressive revelation. Yeah, that's and that's a very helpful way of putting it. Um, do you think that uh, Jewish interpretive methods, you know, the Second Temple period, that things that normally you hear about in the New Testament use of the old? Uh, things like uh, Midrash and like Pesher and that kind of thing. Do you think that that has relevance um, for this area of study that you're doing? Um, do we And do we see these kind of interpretive methods in the Old Testament? Um, or were these ideas that developed long after? That's a, that's a really great question. And I mean, the scholarship, especially of the New Testament use of the old, I mean, I mean, that's, that's something that is uh, they're tied up in. Like so many of these other things, this is a, a yes and no answer, right? That's what that's what professors say, right? Yes and no. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's continuity in a sense, but there's um, also something different. So um, we talk about Pasher. I mean, that's just a normal Aramaic word for interpret. And so we do see some Pesher interpretations in the Hebrew scriptures, well, uh, in the Aramaic scriptures, I guess, and Hebrew scriptures, especially in dreams, like you have a dream and Joseph will give an interpretation, or uh, in the case of Daniel, he actually uses the word, you know, this is the interpretation, he uses the word in the Aramaic Pesher, um, uh, Peshera, Pishra, um, and he gives the interpretation. But the genre of um, Pesher interpretation that we find among the sectarian writings of the um, communities in the Judean desert. Um, they're kind of, it's a genre. So they're going, they're quoting a line of scripture and then saying, this is the interpretation, right? And they're using the word pesha right there. And then they give an interpretation. Then they quote the next line of, this is the interpretation. And because they go line by line and they're applying the scriptures to their own circumstances, it becomes very allegorical. I mean, so Pesher interpretation is extremely allegorical. So one of the ways we need to compare this is to, um, in the Bible, we call it typological patterns. And both Old Testament, but even more in the New Testament, there's the use of typological patterns. Something old sort of is shaped like something new, if you will. And tip. Typological patterns, though, are very different in how they function in the Bible because they're selective, um, that only these parts of the type get appropriated to the antitype. So that, um, let's say, it's if Joseph were a type, 
um, he's only a type in the sense of his rule, right? Because um, when Judah's brothers and Judah are standing before um, Jacob and Jacob's dying, he says to Judah, right? Oh, Judah, your brothers will bow down to you. And so all the other brothers, they remember Joseph's dreams. And so, of course, then Joseph becomes, his whole life becomes sort of a prototype, a picture of what the Judah king will be like. Okay, that's fine. But then if we were to begin to say, as some interpreters do, oh, well, then everything in Joseph's life must have meaning. What about his coat of many colors? And so, well, forget about the fact that it, the Hebrew term probably means long sleeve jacket. Um, so sorry about, you know, the musical, Joseph's technicolor coat. But um, once we get to that level, you know, that, that's what sickens people about overzealous interpretive interpretation. We call them hypertypers or something like this. Mm. So the types, type, typological patterns in the Bible, like when Christ is compared to the suffering, um, of, uh, the, especially using some of the Psalms and from uh, some of the prophets, it doesn't go line by line. It just picks out those parts that correspond. Mm. And so Pesher is very allegorical typological patterns, there's a similarity, but it's very selective. So it's very different. And we don't find the sort of allegorical interpretations like that in the Bible. And we don't find typological patterns in the uh, sectarian writing. So yeah. there's definitely a similarity, but there's also a difference. And when you talk about Midrash too, that's another, that's just a term that means interpretation. But yeah, it sort of starts in the Bible, but sort of doesn't. I mean, um, you know, we talk about the genre first. Uh, the genre of Midrash um, in the Second Temple period and beyond, it's kind of, uh, especially in the narratives, it's filling in backstory. Uh, so it takes biblical stories and then adds stuff, sometimes very creatively and imaginatively, and it's what we really love about the Midrash. Well, they got the idea from... Deuteronomy and Chronicles, right? Because when we read Deuteronomy and it retells the stories, there, it's like it's filling in backstory. But um, what is a little bit different is the sort of uh, the the genre of midrash is so emphasizing the backstory that it becomes very imaginative and very creative. So, yes, they got the idea from Chronicles, but. And Deuteronomy, but um, these are more tied to the historical circumstances, so to speak, uh, than the Midrash. Yeah. So it's, I think Midrash gets a bad name, but um, you know, if, if I go to church this Sunday anywhere in the United States, and the pastor is preaching on, um, say, the feeding of the five thousand, the pastor might start talking about the little boy who brought his lunch to the Lord and. His mom in the morning, you know, talked about, now you have, don't, don't give this away. You need to eat it, right? And yeah. sort of, we make up this whole big backstory and everybody in church, of course, loves it. We all know that it's just made up and it's kind of an interpretive trick that we're using to sort of focus on one of the details of the text. And so I think that everybody knew that the ancient Midrash was, that sort of interpretation and everybody is sort of in on the joke uh, in that sense. 
So I, I do think that there's, um, I, I think again, maybe one of the things that if I parse your question a little bit, um, I think that when the scholarship of the New Testament use of the old kind of points to similarities between Midrash and Pesher and what's going on in the New Testament, it is right. We should compare um, the New Testament use of scripture to Second Temple Judaic interpretations. Absolutely. But what we also need to remember is that both the um, sectarians and the New Testament authors, they're both working with the Hebrew Bible. And so they, some of the things that we notice that are similar are not really similar. So you see, uh, you know, often in the literature of the New Testament use of the Old Testament, they'll talk about Hillel's rules of interpretation. Well, Hillel's rules of interpretation, they're not rules. <laughs> they're um, observations of what's going on in the Old Testament. And so like probably the most famous one is uh, um, from lesser to the greater. And so when we see the New Testament authors doing lesser to the greater, so many New Testament commentators, I mean, they barely even need to prove it anymore. Just like, oh, that's a rabbinical move. Well, Hillel saw that in the Old Testament. So, um, you know, so when we see, for example, love the residing foreigner, well, if you should love the residing foreigner, how much more should you love your neighbor? Um, when we read in Exodus 23, you know, help out the um, domestic animal of your enemy if it's in trouble. Well, Deuteronomy 22 says, how much more? If your neighbor's domestic animal is in trouble, certainly here's all the ways you need to help it out. So I just think this lesser to the greater is very commonplace in the Bible. And so Hillel's not making a rule so much as an observation about what anybody can see when they read the Bible. Yes. So when the New Testament uses these commonplace interpretive moves in the Hebrew scriptures, it really raises the question, why would they need to consult rabbinical scholarship for something that you can find everywhere in the Old Testament and vice versa? So I think that one thing, and I'm pushing back here a little bit, is that um, of course there's similarities between uh, proto-rabbinical interpretation and the scholars of uh, the Second Temple Judaic um, writings and the New Testament. Of course, there's similarities. They're all kind of using the Old Testament and they're kind of working out some of the things they see going on in the Hebrew scriptures themselves. So I think that we probably need to compare, if you will, um, how these things are different and how they're coming out of the uh, Hebrew scriptures different that has to be part of the equation before we jump to the conclusion that, you know, that there's some kind of dependence between the sectarians and the New Testament writers or whatever. Yeah, and, and I'll confess that I kind of, um, before you made this observation, it very much was in my mind that you have the Old Testament and then you get these weird interpretive methods just coming up in the Second Temple period. And then we get them in the New Testament, but you're <laughs> saying that they're, the, the seeds for that were there all along. And I think that's... Everybody's drinking from the same water. Yeah. So yeah. if they were not similar, we should be like, why not? Yeah. Um, so the fact that they're similar 
doesn't mean anything if it's a similarity that we find in the New Testament. But I think what what your question, though, what's really true is we do get a certain kind of stream of exaggeration in the early Christian writings and a different kind of um, preference for interpretive moves that we find in the um, proto-rabbinical proto writing. So they're both, there's overlap, like any circles that we find in a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap, but they're different emphases. But really, these things all are coming out of the Bible. Yeah. And maybe we'll uh, take a look at some of the observations that, that you make in this book about how the Old Testament interprets itself for want of a better phrase. Great way to put it. And I thought you made an interesting observation at, at the beginning of your book about um, the story of the Garden of Eden, when you state the exegetical contest in the garden offers a warning against the dangers of bad exegesis. It also illustrates that just because interpretation appears in the Bible, it may not advance revelation. So I have a couple of questions about this. And um, But first of all, um, did writing this uh, put pressure on you to, to get every exegetical decision right? Well, I mean, I'm an Old Testament professor. I teach Hebrew and Old Testament. So I, I, my nine to five is trying to get it right and to help students get it right. I mean, that's that's what my adult career is. So no, no more pressure than that. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I think that the one thing that I'm cognizant to, I mean, I, I want to get it right and I want my students to, but we, we all need to serve the Lord this week. Um, people need to preach, they need to teach, they need to do Bible studies, we need to um, help people in challenging situations. We have things to do this week. And so sometimes what we find is people will use not having a fully advanced theology and not having everything right as an excuse to put off. So um, when I was a, a seminary student, I was working as a teaching assistant for um, Howard Hendricks. And he's not particularly known as a scholar, but he's a he was a brilliant teacher. Um, and he had... Uh, tremendous intuition in the scriptures and his uh, instincts and the scripture just fell open in his hands. So I always enjoyed working uh, for him. We were out to lunch one day and, um, and having a great conversation. And he looked at his watch said, Oh, I have a faculty meeting. I'm late. And so I, I quickly was getting up and felt bad that I hadn't reminded him and we're, we're getting ready to leave. But then he, he sat back down and he said, I'm not going to go to faculty today. This conversation's more important. And I just remember, um, I mean, it was just one of those days. I mean, that particular set of conversations really helped me. I mean, there's many things that are still part of my work that come from that. But one of the things he said is, you know, we can't ever get things right. We have to teach this week. And so everything is provisional. So we need to do our very best work at the highest level. And that's what I tell my students every time they write a paper. Work at the highest level you can, um, but it's provisional. And so, um, you know, in the case of this book, yeah, I want to get it right. I mean, it basically is a quarter of a century of my research. So it's, but it's provisional. I hope five years from now, it's better. But we we all need to move forward with where we are to make. Um, progress. We have to serve the Lord. 
Yeah, and, and in a hundred years from now, there, all the scholars going to be saying, "Man, he got everything wrong." You know, <laughs> of course, of course. What else are they going to say? Hi, folks. This is Patrick. Um, just interrupting the current podcast to say that there was a slight audio interruption in the next question that I asked, and just to recite it here, it was a question of what are some other examples of the Bible where we get, um quotations and interpretation that does not necessarily advance revelation. Another interpretation that's along those lines, Patrick, um, uh, here I'm, I'm turning in my Bible to Numbers chapter 16, and I'll, I'll read a verse. This is Korah and his associates in their rebellion in the wilderness. And so this is another kind of exegesis that's similar to the contest in the garden, I guess. I'm going to read verse three. Um, we read, they say to Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And that's such a great question because, you know, Korah and the other rebels, they're saying the whole congregation's holy. And, and we can hear it from Leviticus and First Peter. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so, you know, we, we, we hear also in the background here, I shall never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. So, I mean, their theology is correct in their quotation, right? Their, their idea is correct. But, I mean, they die this very day for their rebellion. So they're kind of using right scripture, uh, right ideas, but their interpretation's off because of how they're applying it. So it's a very um, thorny thing to sort through some of all of this. Um, in this case, it gets a little easier because in verse 13, I'll, I'll read you their other reply here. And this is uh, from Dathan, Abraham, and Eliab. Uh, and they're kind of associates with Korah. They, they say, quote, Is it too little that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that now you must lord it over us? Now, that's a little easier to spot their sort of distortion of revelation. Um, but it kind of goes together. They have some things that ring true or mixed in with some things that um, really don't fit. Mm. It's, uh, it's, I suppose it's kind of like uh, the book of Job, is it, where they're, they're kind of the, the three friends. They're, they're saying some things where you're like, yeah, maybe he's right there. And then a lot of a lot of things you're like, oh man, you're totally wrong, you know. I think that's a great example because um and a scholar, Will Kinds, kind of put me onto this, and I deal with this in the book in the chapter on Job, is that the um kind of it's it's push it's pushing back sort of um in a parody sort of way. So when someone's suffering, I mean, most of us can, uh, at least in a small way, we don't suffer like Job, but we're used to people coming up to us and turning right from this terrible, tragic moment, very profound, and people just blurt out these cliches of encouragement, and, and, and it's so inappropriate um, most of the time, but most of the time we, we, we just... We know what people mean, and even though they're kind of clumsy in how they've said it, we, we let it go. But the whole book of Job is really putting that sort of thing on display, and so it 
almost as um, uh, one of my colleagues is, um, thinks of the book, especially as um, sort of a playing out some of the troubles that Israel as a collective suffer in the exile. And so are they using theology in the wrong ways to explain their collective suffering? And Job becomes sort of almost a parable to um, help them with that. So, yeah, I think that's a really great example. The book of Job is there's this whole book of teaching wisdom, which is really made up of degrees and shades of error. So it's some truth mixed with some error. And it's a, it's a brilliant book. I mean, of course. Yeah. And um, it's probably one of the reasons I've never heard a sermon on the book of Job. Well, maybe one or two, but I've never heard like someone preaching through the book of Job because if they were to take one chapter where it's just one of Job's friends speaking, that it would probably be an awkward sermon when they're just saying, okay, so everything he's saying in this sermon is wrong. But, um, <laughs> you know, but um, I suppose um, you're touching on something there about incorrect interpretation in the Bible itself. So um, as Christians, how do you think we we make a judgment on when something is non-revelatory interpretation? Um, is, is there a method or do we simply have to take things on a, on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I, I don't know that I would want to put this down to a method, but it, it is a really good question. But I think that um, case-by-case is maybe a good start, but it's this is a very subtle issue, but I probably wouldn't frame it the way you did in terms of non-revelatory. Because when we think about what's going on, it's contextualized. Even if we take, say, the uh, tempter with the Lord in the wilderness in the New Testament, I mean, they're both quoting scripture in this sort of scripture interpretation contest of sorts. They're both theologizing. Uh, So there's something revelatory about even how the tempter is using scripture. So it's not, right, we wouldn't want to kind of quote his verses the way he does, but there is something to be learned there. So uh, I I think then, you know, when when the New Testament writers look at the Hebrew scriptures, they take it all as living and active. God breathed in a sense. So um, so I I probably wouldn't want to say there's revelatory and non-revelatory parts, but I would want to, with you, I want to echo like there's some really difficult parts of the scripture and almost everything to do with the scripture's interpretation of the scripture is much contested. Well aware of that. Mm. There's um, no easy ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. I think I'll move on to to look at a couple of traditions that um, get quoted throughout the Old Testament. And uh, this is definitely the first thing that I was thinking I thought of when I saw your book. I was thinking of, you know, the the various things that just get repeated um, throughout throughout the Old Testament. And um, yeah. one, if not the most quoted tradition uh, in the Old Testament is what you refer to as the, the divine attribute formula. So I don't suppose maybe for the listeners, you could explain what this formula is and um, why you think this formula is so important to the various writers. That's a really great, great question because it is... Um so often quoted. And sometimes it's um, quoted as a 
stock phrase or just a cliche. So it's sometimes not exegetical. So it's not necessarily coming back to this passage in Exodus 34 all the time, but sometimes it is. And so that's a judgment call. And um, it's very difficult um, to know sometimes. So I think, Patrick, in every single one of my chapters, you know, there's a, a section at the end called filters. And I was really both happy and surprised that the publisher let me put that in there to show my work because so many books like this um, that deal with biblical interpretations, we read them and we wonder, is that really an interpretation or just a coincidence? And so I wanted to show my work, not just what are exegetical uses of the scriptures by the scriptural writers, but what are just coincidence, stock phrases, common idioms? And so the end of each chapter has filters in it that sort of show parallels in scripture that are non-exegetical. And, and that's exactly what we run across with the um, attribute formula. I'm going to start by reading two verses out of Exodus 34, Patrick, just to make sure all the, all your listeners are on the same page with us. Uh, and this is after the golden calf rebellion and the Lord agrees to reveal himself to Moses. And this is what we um, hear. Uh, Exodus 34 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So this um, revelation, I mean, it's just stunning and beautiful, even in its setting in Exodus. And so that alone is a reason to look at it. But we think about Moses, um, and he's the quintessential prophet, right? There's no prophet like Moses. And we know in the scriptures that no one can endure revelation as much as Moses. And here is probably the most intimate moment of Moses's life and the Lord reveals himself. And so we as scripture readers get to glimpse this with him. So it's not a surprise to me that this is one of the most popular, just because of what it is. Um, you know, it's a favorite scripture. But I think that um, the, the other thing going on here is um, there's some pushback. Uh, this passage itself is already an interpretation of the second commandment, uh, the the image command in Protestant counting of the Ten Commandments. And so that idea of passing on the judgment to the children and the children's children, that's not something that just bothers us. That bothered the biblical authors. Mm. And so even in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, you know, there's sort of an allusion, a light allusion to the attribute formula, but more of an allusion to the source of it in the uh, the image command, and sort of uh, Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10, um, sort of kind of divide two kinds of people, the Yahweh lovers, those that obey his will, and Yahweh haters. And then it takes this term from the attribute formula, the Lord is faithful, and he will judge Yahweh haters to their face. And so there's this sense there, it's, you know, he's not going to pass it on to the children, 
It's, they're not going to get away with anything. So don't think that that's what the law means. Doesn't mean that. Uh, or, you know, very famously, uh, the prophet Jonah. And again, we don't know what he preached. We just have a book of a story about him. Um, but the kind of the high point of the story is in chapter four, where he is so angry at God's graciousness. I mean, God's just so gracious that it makes him angry. And so here he is venting and seething in his anger at the mercy of God. And he says, I knew you would do this. I knew it. That's why I tried to run away. Here I have to see how forgiving you are. And so both the extent of God's wrath and the extent of God's mercy are really profound. And so it's not a surprise that, as you said, maybe more than anything else, I'm not sure, I'm not a counter, but the scripture authors go to this. This is a go-to passage. I mean, it just, you know, Psalm 103 um, alludes to this, and then it talks about the forgiveness that is this, right? God forgives sin as far as the East is from the West. And just so, this is a passage that just attracts ongoing attention. And so it's not just us as post-biblical writers. You know, we're interested in this in the same way that the biblical writers were themselves. Yeah. Every time I hear those those verses from Exodus, you always get that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling in the first half. You're like, oh, this is great. And then when it gets on to the bit about punishing, you're oh, oh, goodness. No, no, no. <laughs> Please, no. I'll just go back to the New Testament. Uh, on that note, and this is kind of only semi-related, but do you think that has anything to do with kind of a, an idea of corporate responsibility? That basically that um, kind of this idea that in some sense that the, the children are responsible? Well, I think that that, you know, is how it gets handled in Exodus 34, honestly. Um, the next section after that is um, one of the legal collections in the Hebrew scriptures. <clears throat> we call it the... Um, uh, the Covenant Renewal Collection. So in chapter 34, verses 11 through 26, there's sort of a rehashing of some of the laws that were in the Ten Commandments and some from the Covenant covenant Collection itself in Exodus 21, 22, and 23. So when the Lord forgives and sort of is going to go on with the people of Israel, he affirms that by giving them uh, a new collection of covenantal laws, which offer an interpretation of the laws that they already got. So it's very interesting mm. from the standpoint of my book uh, and, and the things I'm concerned with in there. But the first um, law in there is a law of uh, intermarriage. And so it takes one of the words from the um, image commandment where the Lord is a jealous God. And it even strengthens that. And he goes on to say, my knee, or Moses says, the Lord's name is jealous, right? So that's his name, jealous. And we put it in a capital letter. And then it goes on to say that it uh, uses some unusual syntax here, um, that if, uh, when you're going into the land, if you arrange marriages for your sons with their daughters, their, their daughters uh, will convert your sons to worship their gods. And it uses this um, word, um, zina, uh, this word for um, uh, prostitution or fornication. It's an illicit sexuality. And so it's, it's, put, it, it's used in a very rare way with a um, male object. It's, um, it's usually used to females this way, but it's as though the, this woman of the Canaanite 
peoples. She's going to be a madam wife and sort of pimp the son. Uh, the, the son's getting into this marriage relationship and she's going to make him whore after her God. And so what you have, of course, when they go into the land, uh, they want to, there's this attraction to marrying into the established people groups to, um, it'll help their children. They'll get into better social and economic situations. But the warning here is they're not going to give up their gods. And so if your son marries their daughters, they're going to worship their gods. And so essentially what you have at that point then is the sins of the father in an arranged marriage do affect the son. And of course, the children that they're going to have when they worship these other gods are going to be children of these other gods. And so you have these this multi-generational punishment, but it's not like the son is um, innocent of his father's sin. He is serving his madam wife and serving these gods. So this is a way of handling this multi-generational, this collective punishment, if you will, in Exodus 34. There's a, um, a way of saying, it's not just your fault. Your sins become your children's sins and your grandchildren's sins. That makes a bit more sense, you know, to, to us, I think. What was the most challenging book of the Old Testament to deal with? And why? That's a really good question. I, I want to repeat again what I've already said to you. I mean, I, I don't take it lightly. I mean, we're having this casual conversation. Every single passage is controversial. Every time that the Bible uses the Bible is controversial. So um, there's a sobering thing when we talk about how this is the word of God. And here someone's tweaking it and they're doing it in God's name. So there's something inherently challenging. Yeah. Uh, so that's everywhere. But I think that the, the books that are the most challenging um, are probably the, uh, the three long prophetic collections of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and uh, Ezekiel. And the reason that they're so challenging, Patrick, is um, uh, scriptural illusion seems to be omnipresent in these books. Um, it's, it's everywhere. And so Isaiah especially, and I think probably most people know this, but if you don't, anybody that doesn't, there's a whole secondary literature for Isaiah. There's a whole secondary literature for Jeremiah. There's a whole secondary literature for Ezekiel. These are worlds unto themselves where most of these books are written by people that don't do anything in their adult lives except Ezekiel. Um, so uh, these are uh, not to be taken lightly. So um, Jeremiah, his his difficulties are a little bit different than Isaiah's, where Isaiah's quoting Isaiah all the time. And so there's a lot of discussion about, you know, uh, the, the collaborative authorship or the nature of the authorship of Isaiah, where in Jeremiah, the debate is um, more around um, is how he's using Deuteronomy and the idiom of the Deuteronomistic narrative, that is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And um, the narratives in Jeremiah and the prose sermons versus the poetic. So uh, there's, I'm going to say, I don't know the number, I'm not a counter. There's dozens, I'll say it that way. There's dozens of doublets all through Jeremiah where he just uses the same verse again somewhere else. Um, these things are very, very troubling. Ezekiel 
is, um, I think I want to say it this way. Um, Michael Lyons has done really good work on Ezekiel and a few other scholars have as well, but Michael Lyons, his work stands out. Um, but Michael Lyons has seen that Ezekiel uses um, priestly idiom. So he sounds like the priestly language in Leviticus chapter 17 through 26. And it's, um, it's some of it's exegesis, but some of it's just idiom. So I, I don't know how they are where you are, but here in the United States, um, you can still find this. It was a lot when I was young, but there's old timers around church. When, and, and we talk like normal people, but if you talk to one of these old timers at church, um, uh, especially back in the old days, they all of a sudden slip into an idiom that sounds like they're in the King James Bible talking, right? <laughs> so they're, they're talking normal, but then when they start talking about the things of God, um, that they just go off, right? We beseech thee that thine divine spirit wouldest attend to us whithersoever we shall go, from thither thou shalt lead us whithersoever thine heart desirest, and so forth. And they just slip into it because they read their King James Bible every day. And so it's a, a natural idiom. I think that's what Ezekiel's probably doing a lot, that he's not always quoting and interpreting Leviticus. He's slipping into a priestly idiom because he's from the priestly line himself. I mean, it's, it's natural. And so sorting out scriptural idiom from scriptural interpretation, especially when Ezekiel never, he never gives a... Um, citation formula. He never says, as it is written. I mean, Ezekiel does not do that. He always says everything in his own voice. And so it's it's extremely challenging to work through that. So the three long prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I would say that their parallels to other scripture is omnipresent. It's just everywhere. And so it, it's very challenging. These are inherently challenging books on their own, but then asking the specific question in my book is, how is Isaiah using scripture? How is Jeremiah using scripture? How is Ezekiel using scripture? This is a whole nother level of complication. Yeah. I think when it comes to Ezekiel, it's compounded by the fact that his language in general, it can be very um, difficult to, um, to, to take. Um, not thinking of any specific passages. Uh, <laughs> well, but, there's uh, some of them that we never read aloud in church. I'll tell you that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think an, another book that people kind of, that there's a lot of controversy around when it comes to, you know, the topic of this interpretation that's happening in the, in the Old Testament is Chronicles. So I'm wondering if you could just briefly explain some of the issues that come up when contrasting Chronicles with Kings and, uh, Oh, you have made sense of them. Yeah, this this is a very challenging area. Probably the hardest issue is, is the chronicler's version of Samuel and Kings like the one that's in our Hebrew Bibles, or is it different than the one that's in our Hebrew Bibles? And so that's, of course, very difficult um, by the nature of the evidence, uh, because the differences in Chronicles are not really like the differences in the Septuagint version of Samuel and Kings, right? Um, but so that controversy comes down to whether the chronicler is just quoting a different version of Kings verbatim, or if he's, these are actually his ideological moves. 
that really brings up the third kind of area of major controversy. And this is this history versus ideology debate that goes on in some, some quarters of um, biblical studies. And I, I, I'm, I'm with the many other, I mean, not all scholars are caught up in this, but I'm with those that are kind of put off by the whole conversation. Like when, when many scholars draw a um, hard and fast distinction between history and ideology. And so, that, you know, they're quick to say, well, how can it be hot historical? It's ideological. And, and, and that just doesn't make sense to me and so many other scholars because, I mean, we're, we're in a generation where I think no one thinks that anyone talks with unbiased objectivity. Like people like me and most even small children don't believe that anything is unbiased. We think everything is ideological. And so I think we also know that someone could be speaking very ideological, but they're saying something that's true, or someone else can be speaking very dispassionately, and they're saying something that's false. So historical reference and ideology, they're two different sorts of things. And so I, I think that, of course, every book in the Bible is ideologically bent. And maybe the chronicler is more ideological than any of them. I mean, he really has an agenda. Uh, but that doesn't really get at historical reference or not. It can be a very ideological telling with historical reference. We're, we're coming towards the end of our time here. And uh, I really appreciate the things you've been saying. I think this will really set the listeners on a to get your book you're really looking at so many fascinating challenges and messes that are amazing that they're part of this bible that we have but i suppose um the last question i would i would just ask uh, is a little bit of a different one um and that is how do you think your book contributes to discussions of source criticism so i'm thinking especially of the pentateuch because someone might wonder like if there's four different sources for example, in the Pentateuch, are they quoting each other, that kind of thing? Or what's going on here? So do you think there is some sort of uh, contribution that your volume is making to that discussion? I, I think so, Patrick. But I mean, I'm going to be upfront here with you. Um, my textbook on the Pentateuch called The Torah Story, I wrote that 15 years ago now. And um, I just spent this past year revising it for second edition. I mean, it's been translated into uh, Korean and whatnot, but, um, what I did in Torah story is, um, I took a bit of a different path and it's going to sound familiar to you now, but it was kind of unique at the time. Um, when I went to school and for a hundred years before that, all of us that went to school, we didn't learn about the Pentateuch. <laughs> um, we learned about either here's this theory, um, and they use the acronym, uh, JEDP. Uh, and, and so some people learned about how this is right, and other people learned about this is wrong. And so uh, all of us went to school during those days, and we didn't learn about the Pentateuch. We learned about um, this theory of how it might be put together or might not be put together. And so Torah story is really a step before that. It's um, to, uh, uh, it looks at the Torah not in pieces, and not even to try to take it apart. Torah story looks at um, what's been put together and reading it. Um, now, what I did in Old Testament, use of Old Testament, is 
everywhere in the Old Testament, I do work on um, dependence. And I ask the question every single time, what's the direction of dependence? And it's based on evidence. The one exception, Patrick, is the, um, the Pentateuch. And this is the reason why, is that I mean, it's not called source criticism, criticism anymore. Um, probably most of the scholars that work on this area refer to their work as inner biblical exegesis. Um, and what happens is, in all of this work on inner biblical exegesis, uh, they tend to um, almost always take the legal collections of the Pentateuch out and consider them in their own right. So they take the legal collection, say, in um, the covenant collection, Exodus 21, 22, 23, or they take the holiness collection in Leviticus 17 to 26, or the Torah collection in Deuteronomy uh, 12 through 26. These legal collections are then compared to each other as legal collections. And so um, what I did in uh, Old Testament use of Old Testament is, uh, since it's an introductory work and since no one's been working on the Torah's own presentation of exegesis, all I did in this book is I, I did a study of the Torah's own presentation of its exegesis. Mm. So in other words, I read the law collections within their narrative context. I didn't take them out. I read them there. Yeah. And so I um, will say this in the introduction. You know, there's nothing wrong with um, considering questions of authorship and figuring out how these things came to be. But one of the things I am committed to, I think that people, students, especially who I'm writing to, we need to know what the Torah's own view is first as a baseline to then compare it to these theories. So one contribution that I'm making is offering something that no one's been talking about is the Torah's own view of how one passage executes another, and that can serve as a baseline. So that's one contribution. I think some of the other things that came up in my studies, um, Patrick, are actually some evidence. Since I'm just focusing on the Torah's own presentation, I just went through the books, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteron Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, I think uh, one, th one thing that came out of that is that um, some of the evidence just doesn't fit with some of the prevailing theories. So uh, I, I can't get into too many technicals now, but a couple of technicals, just so you can see what I'm saying, is that um, in, um, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 10, it talks there about how you need to love the residing foreigner. Well, that's of course, much like love the residing foreigner in Leviticus 19, 34, and 35. Uh, there's obviously a relationship between the two. But if we look at the Hebrew syntax, um, the Hebrew syntax in Deuteronomy 30, uh, Hebrew, excuse me, Deuteronomy 10 is conventional syntax, where the syntax in Leviticus 19, 18, and 19, 34, and 35 is very unusual. Uh, there's only actually like three cases of this syntax in the uh, Old Testament, the word love used with la to mark the direct object rather than the definite direct object marker, which you have in Deuteronomy. So 
in the scriptures, use of the scriptures, it almost always works towards disambiguating difficult syntax. So it's almost impossible to make the argument of going from conventional syntax in Deuteronomy 10 to an ambiguous, odd syntax in Leviticus 19. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, the evidence actually points to a disambiguation going from the unusual syntax in Leviticus 19 and disambiguating it when it's represented in Deuteronomy 10. Mm. So that's one example. Um, there's many examples like that. So things aren't maybe as uh, simple as we would like them to be, I guess. Uh, but uh, No, yeah. and I think that people in uh, the scholars in interbiblical exegesis, nobody thinks it's simple. I mean, everybody realizes it's, it's um, the days of the Wild West in the United States. I mean, it's... <laughs> everybody has their own theory now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I greatly appreciate you uh, coming on the show just to talk about your book. And it's, of course, called Old Testament Use of Old Testament. And I'll put a link in the description. But um, thanks anyway for, for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Patrick, thank you for having me on. I, uh, I appreciated talking with you. Thank you for uh, pushing back a little and um, asking some really helpful questions. It was it's fun. <laughs>